Hey, before we dive in as well, uh, just two resources that may be of help as we work through Revelation. Um, the first off is, uh, it's called a credo course, and a lot of our slides and things will be out of a guy named Dr. March Hitch- Dr. Mark Hitchcock, and uh, I use a lot of his stuff as I did some prep early on in this, and so he's a good resource um, when it comes to Revelation. And then there's another, another book that... Um, uh, I just recently started diving into called Reading Revelation Responsibly by Michael J. Gorman. Um, really good summer reading and helps a lot as you think about this book of Revelation and um, some good resources that way. All right, so we're going to hit uh, chapters two and three today, um, and we're not going to go a deep dive into them, but we are going to kind of stay at some surface level and give you um, an idea of what we're talking about. It's interesting. Um, in, in youth ministry, uh, there are so many stories that I could tell of youth ministry that are um, funny stories, um, dangerous stories, uh, stories such as showing the passion of the Christ to ninth graders when they weren't ready to watch the passion of the Christ. Uh, and I'm like, just let it keep rolling. This is going so well. <laughs> they never wanted to come back to youth group ever again. I almost got fired. It was great. Um, and then, you know, anything from that to uh, running winter retreats that I'm pretty convinced this hotel up north uh, was run by the Russian mafia. Um, there was almost getting kicked out of a youth uh, New York missions trip as an intern um, for doing something really stupid in a van. Uh, that all the students, you know, it's bad when the youth intern uh, it says something and all the kids in the van go, ooh. You know, when the students say that, you know you're in trouble. And so we had a long talk after that. But there's so many stories I could tell uh, in that realm that are funny. But there's also a lot of stories in youth ministry that I could tell of some huge success things. Of students who um, went above and beyond um, what they should have in their spiritual growth. What they were living with at home. Uh, and how the, the, the gospel was not celebrated in the homes that, that they were in, and Christ was not the biggest priority, but to see them succeed and, and, and love Christ through it. There's so many great, huge stories of students who uh, just made amazing steps in their faith um, and still continue to grow in it today. But then sadly, um, there's also stories in youth ministry where... Um, they're more heartbreaking stories, students who get saved and they're growing and they're, they're maturing and, and then somewhere along the way, they just opt out. They just decide it's too hard, it's not worth it. Uh, I remember three or four really big, you know, heartbreaking moments in youth ministry because, you know, you watch a kid from middle school grow all the way up into a senior and then their senior year they come to you and you're like yeah I'm not gonna do this whole church thing anymore I'm not gonna really follow Christ there's really some other things I'm gonna pursue and it's just heartbreaking if you've if you've heard stories of people that have kind of just walked away from the faith or stories of people who uh, were on fire for Christ and then all of a sudden they just they just give up and there's there's just nothing left Sadly, what we're going to see this morning is in these churches, um, you're going to see a snapshot of just about every church that has ever existed through history, and you're going to see um, a lot in the one church in particular we're going to look at, this idea of just kind of a, <clears throat> a walking away um, uh, of a church that started really well, and then they just kind of gave up, and they just decided the culture looked better, and so I'm just going to follow that instead. And you may have known people uh, in your own life for the last three or four years that have decided to do the same thing, that have walked away from Christianity, that have walked away from church, that have walked away from Christ in particular. And it's heartbreaking because you've tried to reach out maybe and you've tried to be there and you've tried to understand what, what's causing it. And it just seems like there's just nothing that's going to penetrate their hearts. They've just given up and, and walked away. And I think if we were to condense all these churches into like three big areas of why or how people walk away, I think you could condense all of the seven churches, all of the stories of youth ministry of walking away, all of your stories you've heard of people walking away. I think you could probably, in some simplistic way, condense it down to three big words of pride, apathy, and ultimately conformity. And you're going to see within all these seven churches, you're going to see pride, you're going to see apathy, and then you're going to see conformity. It's going to start in pride, pride's going to lead to apathy, and then apathy is going to lead to conformity. 
And, and it happens to all of us in some way or in some time. And if you've not been through that season of your Christian faith, you will. Because there are times in your life where you just feel like, I know better than God. And, and, and I don't really feel like doing all the stuff that he's asked me to do. And it's easier just to conform or get apathetic and, and move on. And so while our church may be unique and while other churches may be unique in who they attract and who's a part of them, I think we can see that the larger issues of pride, apathy, and conformity are going to be seen as we look at all of these churches uh, that we see here in chapters 2 and 3. So here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, just in some head knowledge to kind of get our head around um, the, the passage and the context. And then we're going to look at a church in particular, and then we're going to pull some things out of it. Make sense? All right, so we're not going to dive into all of them. We're just going to take a big global look at them, and then we're going to look at one in particular, and then we're going to kind of pull out from there. So, okay, so the goal of the series, again, as we've said in Revelation, the goal of the series is not a verse-by-verse interpretation of Revelation. That would take us at least 32 weeks, and you don't have the time for that, um, but we will have some deep dives coming up. The first one's here in two weeks. We're actually going to be covering a lot of the seven churches in that deep dive, so if you have more questions, come to that one. I think it's the last week of June um, after church. So, what we said in this series is it is um, it's going to remind us of who it is that we worship. We saw that in chapter 1. We had a very strong image of Jesus Christ and who he was as the great priest ruling in the tabernacle. Uh, and then we're going to see that in Revelation, it's, it's, it's the big goal is to be, let us to become obedient through tribulation, to allow us to become obedient even through suffering. And then lastly, it's going to tell us who in the end wins. And here's the spoiler alert um, ruining the movie for you. We do. Uh, the church wins in the end, and Christ wins in the end. And so all the evil that you see and all the things you get, your heart get broken over of the sin of this world and the destruction you see around you will ultimately one day be defeated. And that's what we read about here in Revelation. So we said last week as well, just as review, there are four big rocks or pillars that we can stand on. Um, we said that we all can kind of get around this idea of a visible, physical, literal return of Jesus, a future bodily resurrection, a final judgment, and a literal heaven, and a literal hell. We can, we can kind of wrap our heads around those, whether we, you know, agree on all the other specifics we can work around those, but those are the big four. And then we said uh, the views represented in this letter are, look like this, and we talked about this last week, so I don't spend a ton of time here. But we said in how Revelation 4 to 19 gets fulfilled, there's four different views that fall under that. Um, how the seven-year or the thousand-year reign works in the millennium, there's three different views there. And then with the rapture, there's four different views that come into that. And those will all get played out, but at least as a big overview, that's kind of what we looked at last week, is just what are the views and what are the big topics we look at. So we also said last week, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, that Revelation is written in, a, in an idea of past, present, and future. We are going to be in the present uh, today uh, in how the letter was written. In other words, we're going to go back in time to where John was, and we're going to look at the present writing. But in Revelation 119, we, we, we read that John put this, right there for the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. We see that John is writing this entire letter to, about the past, the present, and the future. The past is um, chapter 1, the present is chapters 2 and 3, where we're going to be today, and then chapters 4 to 19, I believe, are, are still to come in the future. So past, present, and future, and so we're going to look at the present. So the present is this. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to just read a little bit from here, and then um, I'm going to introduce you to the seven churches as a whole. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found themselves to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." That form, that structure is, is going to be seen in every single letter. Um, 
and that's probably the first thing you need to realize as we get into this head knowledge piece of Revelation. Revelation is unique in the fact that you've got a vision in chapter 1. You've got letters uh, that you would recommend, the 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 Peter. You, you recognize letters. You just don't understand how letters would actually fit into a full book. It's almost like you take 1 Peter, 2 Peter as a letter context. You throw it into this style. It just doesn't make sense. But here we are. We've got seven letters written to seven churches, and many believe that this was all kind of worked around the seven churches. But Let me introduce you to these seven churches and some things of these letters to start off just in head knowledge. So the seven churches introduced. The first one is Ephesus, uh, and this is uh, the modern uh, view of what Ephesus is today. There's still remnants of Ephesus there. The second church is Smyrna, and there is the grounds of Smyrna in Turkey today. There is Pergamum. Um, and we have a lot to say about Pergamum, even that front slope right there um, of the uh, of the city is unique. That was called the throne of Satan, which you're going to read about. Uh, that's still there. You can still see all this stuff today, which is crazy. Uh, Thyatira uh, is the other church you're going to read about, uh, and then Sardis, and uh, then we get into Philadelphia, which there's not much left in the ruins there, uh, but in Philadelphia, and then Laodicea will be the last Um, All of these seven churches are located today in what is modern-day Turkey. And if you look on a map, you can kind of see they kind of make like a horseshoe. And I think that's very important as we look at the book of Revelation. So they would have started in Ephesus, and they would have just kind of worked themselves around the horseshoe and delivered these letters to these seven churches. The importance of these seven churches is very important because it's it's very important about how we um, understand these seven churches and then how we apply what is said in these seven churches. So the first question that gets raised every single time when you look at these seven churches is why these seven? <laughs> why seven churches when there's probably at least, at least 30 to 40, if not 50 other churches in the area? Why these seven? It's like, it's like if you were to receive a letter and it's like just the, the churches in Northeast Ohio got these letters. When there's churches all over the world, why these seven in particular? Um, I believe that one of the reasons was this idea of kind of a delivery route, uh, that it was the easiest way to kind of bring them around. And some would say it's based off of just the uh, ease of them, um, possibly. Uh, The other view is that they're symbolic of all churches, which I would agree with as well, uh, that there is a symbolism that is attached to these churches that is true for all churches over space and time. Um, and that would mean that basically, uh, when we say it's symbolic of all churches, that means that in Canal Fulton, Ohio, you can probably find a church that will match not only one of the characteristics of this church, but maybe more than one of the characteristics mentioned in these seven churches. So again, so if we were to say why these seven, you could look at the past, you could say authors and readers of the original audience, um, they understood this and they had to understand this. And so there was a a delivery route that worked in there as far as the delivery of it. Uh, If you were to say um, the present in this, that all churches today can find themselves in in the things of there. And then there's a third view of why these seven churches, which I don't hold to, but it preaches well and so I'll give it to you. Uh, the, the other one is that the, all these churches are representative of all church history throughout time. And so they would say the Revelations 2 and 3 is a future look into all the churches that would happen from that time on. And so let me just kind of just give you a, a snapshot uh, of what this means. Um, when we say the future of the church, uh, it would look like, I think, is this next, is this next Justin? Uh, yeah, so they would say that uh, each of these churches represents a church age. And I don't know if you can read that from there. The color's a little funky. Uh, but Ephesus um, represented the apostolic age from A.D. 30 to A.D. 100. It then Smyrna represented the persecuted age of the church from 100 to 313 A.D. Pergamum represented the Roman Empire in 313 to 600 A.D., which that was a very, just, if you don't know church history, that was a very, very dark time in church history. That's when the church married the state and the state married the church, which led to very terrible decisions. Many people were killed and Christianity got a really, really bad black eye during that time, during Pergamum. 313 to 600 is a terrible time in church history. Uh, Thyatira is the Roman Catholic age from 600 to 1517. Sardis is the Reformation age, 1517 to 1648. Philadelphia is the missionary age when missions started to kick off around 1648 to 1900. And then they would say Laodicea is today's church, 1900 till we don't know when Christ returns. Now, 
they, they would say that all these then are prophetic, that they each can fall into a church history timeline. And while that may preach well, and I could see that possibly, there's a couple reasons I don't think that's, that's really true. One, uh, it's not in the text. You've got to read it into the text um, is, is reason number one. Um, second one, the lukewarm is not really fitting all of today. You know, so if you were to say, look at the church and the church is lukewarm, I would have a hard time saying, in the West, you could make that case, right? In the West, you could say, yes, the church is lukewarm. But if you were to go to Haiti or if you were to go overseas to a persecuted church and you say, you're lukewarm and they're killing it amidst persecution, and you say they're lukewarm, I don't think that fits the global church. So while this may fit the West, I don't think it fits global. And so I have a hard time saying, yeah, that kind of fits all these prophetic things. It's, it's interesting, but I don't think it is correct. Uh, Jesus's words of coming at any time get taken out of context here then, because if he says, I'm going to come at any time, um, it's almost like then some of these churches could have been irrelevant, right? So if he decided to come during uh, Smyrna uh, and not now, then you're like, what happened to the other churches? Because again, it was, it's something we can look back and say, but I don't know that it's 100% where we need to be. Okay, so that's all head knowledge stuff. Um, that's some of the views when it comes to why these seven. I think specifically as we look at this in particular, I think we have to say, Let's go to what the original audience understood these to mean, and let's go back to the context of where they're written, why they're written to the original audience so that we can get a better feel for where we can understand it today, okay? That's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the letter as it was, what it meant to them, and then we'll pull some things out of it. So the other thing that is interesting in uh, 2 and 3 uh, is that every single letter, there are seven parts to every single letter. The, the number seven is going to be throughout the book of Revelation. You're going to see so many sevens. And a lot of people are going to add those sevens up and get to some really weird conclusions by adding all the sevens. I'm just going to say, this is God saying seven equals complete. And not only am I going to pick seven churches and I, as an idea of complete, I'm also going to throw it into every single letter of complete. And so this is unique. So in every single letter, you have seven different pieces of every letter. There's a commission, uh, which is to the angel of. Uh, you'll see that in every single letter. There's an image of Christ that is unique to each letter. That's number two. You'll see an encouragement. This is what you did right. And then you'll see a complaint. This is what you did wrong. And then you'll see a correction. This is what you need to sure up. And then you're going to see a challenge. Um, and then you're going to see a, a, comf or a challenge and then a, a promise as, as it closes. But every single letter, you're going to see each of those pieces as it's brought out. And you're kind of like, wow, who, how cool of God in a vision to give you patterns and systems to say, I'm in control of not only all of the universe, I'm also in control of every single letter that goes out to these seven churches. So these unique pieces are all part of it. Complaint, correction, call, and then ultimately the promise or even the comfort. Uh, and the comfort is to the overseer. Uh, now, just as a quick thing too, I know this is a lot of head knowledge, but when it says overseer, there's a lot of different things of like what people interpret, who is the overseer, what does the overseer mean? I'm just going to give you that I believe the overseer is all Christians. Uh, to, uh, every believer who is in Christ is an overcomer, and there is an opportunity for us to respond to each of these things he gives to the seven churches. Now, not only are there seven churches, seven persons of every letter, the unique part as well within these seven churches is there are two churches that do not get any complaint. They're, they're great. There's no, you fix this, you need, to, you need to work on this. So if you throw this up, you'll see the seven churches. Only Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two churches to escape without, you need to fix this. Okay, so some really cool things are happening in Philadelphia. Some really good things are happening in Smyrna. And on top of that, there's two churches that don't get any complaint. But unfortunately, there is one church that gets no encouragement. They're just doing everything wrong, and that's Laodicea. So take that for what it's worth, but the only church in all seven letters to be like, there's no good in you at all, is Laodicea. So uh, we got more to cover uh, when we do the deep dive, but um, just as, a, as an overview. So let me give you again uh, a little more detail on, on these seven churches, and then I promise we're going we're gonna to dive into a church uh, together. But let me just give you a couple things when it comes to uh, each of these churches so you can kind of get a better feel. So first off, Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, their big thing 
is that they were doctrinally rich, but they were lovingly poor. Uh, somebody has said that they are high in orthodoxy, but they are low in orthopraxy. That's a fun word to say. You should throw around orthopraxy this week. You'd be like, you know what you're not doing? Orthopraxy. What is orthopraxy? It is basically mean you're not living out doctrinally what you should be living out. So you really know a lot, but you don't do anything with it. So you may know churches like this or have come from churches that maybe have this reputation that they're really high in doctrine. They know it all, but they're not living it at all. Uh, they are doctrinally rich but lovingly poor. And to this church, then, the image of Christ uh, was him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. It's, a, it's, an, it's an image of control. Uh, it's an image of I'm reigning over this. Uh, and it's also, um, well, there's more. We'll cover the deep dive. So anyway, there's an image attached to that. The, the issue is all the right doctrine without any actions. And their promise is if you correct this, you will, reinsert, you will inherit the tree of life. And there's a reason for that. We're not going to get into all these today. We'll cover these more and get into the deep dive, but that's the first one. Ephesus. Uh, doctrinally rich, lovingly poor. Second one is Smyrna. Uh, and Smyrna is the one that there was really no issue, but uh, they were persecuted and maligned. Uh, they had a lot of persecution they felt in the city. Um, and the image of Christ here as he speaks to them, if you want to throw these up, is him who is first and last, who died and came to life. That's interesting for a church that's persecuted. The image is, I have conquered death. So even if you go to death, I've got you covered, is his message to Smyrna, which is important. They have no issues. It's really more of an encouragement of keep doing what you're doing amidst persecution. And ultimately, they have a really cool promise of you will get a crown of life. Uh, there's a couple crowns in Scripture, uh, and this is one of them. Uh, and to the church that's persecuted and maligned, he says, you'll receive a crown of life. And so that's kind of their issue. And then Pergamum is the other one. Um, and this is uh, indifferent to culture. We're going to actually spend a lot of time in Pergamum today. That's going to be our deep dive into one of the churches. But they just became indifferent to culture. And so the image of Christ for them is him who holds the sharp-edged sword. That's not an image you want per se. Uh, you know, of all the images that you want, you probably wanted the guy who's like, I offer life. You probably don't want the image of, I've got a sword in my hand and it's two-edged and it's sharp and it's about to cut some heads off. Like, that's probably not the image you want, but that's the image they get. Uh, he holds the sharp edges, two-edged sword, and their issue is holding to Balaam and Nicolaitans. We're going to talk about that. Uh, and their promise was given hidden manna and names on stones if they are able to turn and come back to where they're supposed to go. So that's Pergamum. They just became indifferent to the culture around them. We're going to talk about that. And then Thyatira uh, embraced cultural religion. So if, if Pergamum kind of became indifferent, it doesn't matter. You do you, I'll do me. Then Thyatira was, I've gone the extra step and I've actually embraced culture and done the acts of culture. And I love the culture and I'm actually endorsing things that Christ wouldn't endorse because the culture tells me to. That's Thyatira. And their image was him who has eyes like fire and feet like bronze. Uh, this is a very interesting image because as he says, eyes like fire and feet like bronze, this was all about purification. Bronze was a metal that could be tested and purified because it could handle the heat. Uh, and so this image to Thyatira is there's going to be a reckoning and there's going to be uh, a burning up and, and you will have to see if you survive that time. And so he's got this huge image of eyes of fire and like bronze, there's going to be a day of reckoning for them. And their issue is they tolerated Jezebel. Uh, if you need more on Jezebel, you can go back to First Kings. There's a ton in the Old Testament about who Jezebel was and what her issues were. And eventually she meets a death that's really, really brutal. Uh, so middle school students, if you think the Bible is boring, I challenge you to go back to Jezebel, read that story where dogs start licking up blood. Uh, it's a great, great story. Uh, and so um, you're like, where is that? You can get there. You can go there the whole morning. That's fine. I'll let you go. Uh, but tolerate Jezebel. There's a whole thing, First Kings, about what that looked like. And then um, there's a promise to them of authority over the nations and the morning star as a promise. Sardis uh, was a church that was alive in name only, but they were dead. They had a reputation for being alive, but they were actually just dead. Uh, everybody in the community would have been like, Sardis is amazing. But if you were to in see the inside of Sardis, you're like, this place is dead and it stinks. And so Smyrna was, or Sardis was a really difficult place to be. There's an image here then that he gives of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. Uh, the issues here, they're all bad. Uh, they're just dead. I mean, there's nothing else you can say. Like, you, I don't know what to do with dead except bury it, right? All bad, dead, and he says, but there is a way of resurrection, and I love it because the promise is you'll be clothed in white and never blot your names out. If you talk about resurrection, there's a whole bunch that comes into that and what he could give to Sardis. Uh, Philadelphia, 
uh, is seven commendations. This is the church that gets it all right. Uh, There's nothing really bad about this. Uh, He gives a lot of, you're doing an amazing job. And actually, Philadelphia, the letter to Philadelphia, not only is there encouragement, guess how many encouragements there are to the letter of Philadelphia? Seven, correct, good job. All right, so there are seven encouragements to the Church of Philadelphia. It's an idea of completion. If you just say seven throughout the series, you're going to get points. So just, just FYI, it's like if you say Jesus to an answer in church, it's like, yes. Okay, so if you say seven, you win. Okay, so, so there's the image then of Philadelphia of the Holy One, the True One, holding the keys of David. Now that's interesting. We get into that in the deep dive, not today. Uh, issues, none. Uh, they're just killing it. They're doing a great job. And then their promise is that they'll be a pillar in the temple, and that's unique too, right? To be a pillar in the temple, to be the strength and the weight that could hold. Oh, there's so much there. So there's a pillar to the temple is the promise given to Philadelphia and the encouragements there. Uh, and then the last one that many of you probably know this one. Many churches have preached on this one. Uh, Laodicea and is the lukewarm church. The image is the words of amen, the faithful true witness, beginning of creation. That's important. The issue is that they're lukewarm and the promise is that they will sit on my throne. Okay? So... Uh, there's a lot of head knowledge here. There's a lot of things to dive into. Like I said, we're going to get into this more in the last week of June. We're going to do some Q&A and spend some time actually looking at these chapter or these churches in particular. Why? Because they're so important and vital to understand the rest of Revelation. They, they truly are vital in your understanding of how the rest of this gets played out. But they're also very important because um, you don't have to look very deep at these seven churches and see why all of these issues are relevant to the church today. And one of the biggest questions that came out from studying these churches is how does something like this happen? As we said at the very beginning, how does somebody walk away? How do they get so caught up in pride or in apathy uh, or in comfort and and conformity that they they just end up walking away? And for the rest of my time, then, I want to just look at one church and talk about how this may happen. So in Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 12 to 17, and we're going to do just a quick case study on Pergamum for the time that we have left today. So... Um, I'm going to read this, and we're going to just dive into uh, this, this, this church. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, not a good beginning. I know where you dwell. Again, not a good beginning. If a guy's got a sword and he's coming after you and he knows where you live, that's a bad place, okay? Uh, you want to move uh, if that's the situation. I know where you dwell, and it gets worse. I know where you dwell, and where you dwell is Satan's throne. <laughs> Great. Uh, so Satan's throne was, again, it's that slope that was seen. It was, it was a lot of sacrificial worship going on at that point. There's a lot of history behind it. It would have been well known in that area. If this church is receiving this letter and they would have heard Satan's throne, they're like, oh, I know where Satan's throne is. That's over by Pergamum, right? That's the church that's living next to Satan's throne. If you, got, if you think location's bad, like, you know, church location in Canal Fulton, wherever, you know, your church is, uh, we probably don't have it as bad as sitting next to Satan's throne. So uh, it's, it's, it's not a good image. You know, you're looking out the window and things are happening that kids can't see. It's, it's, a, it's a bad place, okay? So I know where you live, Satan's throne, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So, so apparently they've survived some persecution. They didn't fall away completely. So there is the encouragement given to them. So good job. I know where you dwell, um, but you, you didn't deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, the faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. That's, that's some history behind that. But, verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay, that's important. The word of God will come against them. He, and every letter ends with these. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone and a new name written on that stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, the, the two things that you see here specifically that he comes against and the idea of being against culture is the word Nicolaitan and the word Balaam. Now, Balaam, again, goes back to First Kings, and let me just kind of Balaam was this idea of getting seduced by uh, ladies uh, at that time that were drawing men away from, from the Jewish faith and, and away from the kingdom and asking them to do the things that their nation wanted them to do. So it would almost be like female spies that used their seduction to, to bring these people out of their religion, and they did it on purpose to bring these people out 
in the Jewish time. Um, in, in, in the book of Acts, then, it also talks about this idea of Nicolaitans and who are the Nicolaitans. And, and, and here's where I got to just kind of give you some, some caveats here. This, this idea of Nicolaitans, uh, tradition says, goes back somewhat to Acts chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And, and this is what the early church fathers believed. This is what historians believe. This is what the early church believed. You could take this and or leave this. I'm kind of like, maybe this was them, maybe not. But tradition says that like the Balaamites, like Balaam, that they were seduced and led astray, the Nicolaitans were made out of a guy that we see in Acts chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permanius, I'm going to butcher those names, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Many in church history and church fathers say that the Nicolaitans came out of this guy named Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so regardless of whether you believe, you know, the whole church fathers, whether it was Nicolaitans, the same issue is the fact that this guy uh, or this church of Pergamum started off in Christ, they started following Christ, and then were led astray. They would say that Nicholas was one of those who started with Christ. He was the, he was a deacon in the early church, and then he worked his way out and started this sect called the Nicolaitans. Now, both of them, though, whether it's the Balaamites in 1 Kings 18 uh, that get some bad rep in Jude 11, 2 Peter 2.15, um, or whether it's the Nicolaitans who led the church astray, both of them are probably found in a really bad movie or example, uh, to give you an illustration of what this would look like in, a, in, in cinema form, is back in 2000s, there was a movie called Chocolat. Does anybody remember this? This is an old one. Johnny Depp is in this, and so if that may be relevant to today somewhat. Uh, but uh, back in this movie, basically, there was an atheist mother and a six-year-old daughter who set up a shop purposely next to a Catholic church, and they set up shop to sell chocolates during Lent. <laughs> and they did it on purpose to draw people out of the church because they thought the church is, is irrelevant, it's outdated, and we just need to get these people out of the church. And so they set up the shop and they actually did it directly during the 40 days of Lent. And then on top of it, she later in the movie decides to do these special uh, chocolates on Easter Sunday to even more put it in their face. And and you watch during this whole movie where, you know, as cheesy as it is, it, you watch as slowly but surely the church starts to kind of be like, chocolate during Lent? That sounds great. And slowly but surely she wins and draws people away from the church, including some of the higher ups in the church. And it's, it's, it's a cheesy movie. It's a, maybe a bad illustration. But that's exactly what was happening with the Balaams and the Nicolites. They were drawing the church away intentionally and on purpose into culture and they were doing so because they thought the church was legalistic, archaic, and Jesus didn't matter. Now, does that sound familiar to anything at all today, right? I mean, we don't have to look far and we're like, okay, that I can see. Like the culture today that's drawing us away, that's trying to seduce us into, it's okay, let's just get into the culture and, and church has got to be relevant and, and we can start to kind of go into those realms. It's the same today. Pergamon is the true... Pergamum is true of many churches who are right now in the middle of deciding if Jesus, if the Bible, if doctrine is important enough to supersede issues such as sexuality, identity, and gender. Are those truly outdated or truly does the Bible have something to say about them? Should we trust what the Bible says about them or should we just decide what culture says about them? And those three big issues are the biggest issues that we are facing today, but it's also probably some of the biggest issues that your students are going to face as they grow through middle middle school and high school. These will be fights that we've never had to fight. These will be questions they're going to have to wrestle with that we've never had to wrestle with. They're going to learn how to, how to speak truth and love, and they're going to need to do it in ways that we've never seen it before in modern church. They're going to need to do it in ways that say, this is what the Bible says. I've got to learn to trust what scripture says and not what culture says and, and, and love you in spite of it. They're going to have to look around and see what it takes to follow Christ and not get drawn into this church like Pergamum and drawn away into their own ideas. Many Christians, because today, many Christians in the name of love and acceptance are changing scripture to accommodate with culture. It's just what we see around us. Um, this is old, uh, 2012, but um, 
how many of, has anybody heard of the, this is just an example of it, has anybody heard of the Queen James Bible at all? Yeah, so the Queen James Bible is, was a translation in 2012, and I'm just going to read it out of the Amazon listing. Um, you may not know this is out there, but this has been out since 2012. The Queen James Bible, or the QJV, also called the Gay Bible, is an edit of the biblical text done in the name, uh, done in the name of um, preventing homophobic interpretations. To accomplish this goal, the publishers printed a Bible in which all the negative references to homosexuality have been removed. The Queen James Bible was published in 2012 and is based on the 1979 edition of King James Bible. Um, these, there, there's a lot of pronouns that are changed in this Bible. There's a lot of things that are starting to shift and change. And people have said, well, that's repressive. We need to actually stick with uh, culture. And so they've seen this transition move into that area. Uh, or just yesterday in Idaho, uh, the Satanic Church there offered a family event in the park in Idaho, and uh, it was called a family-friendly pride event that offered free unbaptisms to anyone who was interested. The quote from those that were at this, uh, that led this Satanic Church event, this is a quote directly from one of their leaders, uh, we are so excited to announce that we will have a booth and be participating in Coeur d'Alene's Pride in the Park event next Saturday, June 11th from 10 to 3. The Satanic Temple in Idaho says in a Facebook post, we will have merchandise for sale, be offering support to our community, and performing unbaptisms for those who are interested. Just know Satan loves you for you. Hail Satan. Right? So we've seen that the church, if it's not relevant, somebody else is going to pick up the mantle. Is it not? We, we've assumed that some, some lesser things will pick up the mantle. Some, some less drastic churches, such as the Satanic Church, right, are, are, are not going to pick up the mantle. But the Satanic Church is like, hey, we love you. You can come as you are. We got you, right? It's just becoming another option. Now, all that to say, does the, the Protestant church and the church here in Canal Fold and just community Bible church alone, do we even here have a ways to grow in, 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 our, in our love and in truth? Absolutely. Do we have a long way to go in understanding how to be in culture but out of culture? Absolutely. Are there many things that we even in this small church have to watch how we say and where we say and what we say because it, it may be truth but it may not be loving? Absolutely. But ultimately, we have to say, as a church, the biggest thing that Pergamum had wrong was they started to say, doctrine isn't really important as much as the mission is important. We've talked about this before. But ultimately, if I were to go around in this community alone and I were to kind of say what the mission is to love our neighbors to life, I would probably have everybody around this area saying, yes, I can get on board with loving our neighbors to life. I love that slogan. I think that's a great slogan. I think I could get a sticker and put that on my car. That's fantastic. Even an atheist could say, I would love these neighbors to true life. And we'd have to really define what life is then, right? But ultimately, we can get on board with the same mission, but, but the biggest issue is we have to be strong in our doctrine. Because if we don't get doctrine right, we don't get any of the other things right. And so this church in Pergamon was saying, let's just go to culture. Let's, I know what the Bible says, but I'm not going to really go there. I just want to do what we're going to do. And, and so in the midst of all of this, there is a temptation, and you know it, I know it, you felt it, I felt it, to say, wouldn't it just be easier to just go along with culture? Wouldn't it just be easier not to have the arguments? Wouldn't it just be easier just to love somebody and hope that Jesus works in their life? Wouldn't it just be easier to be all grace and all love and, and no truth? Absolutely. Absolutely it would be. But unfortunately, Pergamum is the example of what happens when we start to just become indifferent to culture. Ultimately, it, the, the Nicolaitans and the Balaams and, and those kind of religions start to feed into this church and, and they start to take it down from the inside out. Quick little plug here, if you're interested on this week, I was heading somewhere out of town to actually go out and see Steve uh, for the graduation. And on the way down, there was a great resource from the Gospel Coalition, uh, 45-minute podcast. This is a fantastic podcast. Just as a, this is not part of the sermon. This is a freebie. Uh, fantastic 45 minutes sexuality and loving our neighbors podcast from the gospel coalition who was it good so if you're looking for a resource and you got some time to kill on a drive time the gospel coalition sexuality and loving our neighbor uh really a great conversation really well done um really one where i had to sit back and be like ouch that hurts and also parts where i'm like amen that is truth Okay, so just for you, it's, it's really good for that. Um, but again, back to the question then of all of this. I'm going to wrap up with these. So again, back to the question though of how does one fall away, right? 
How does one start strong, but ultimately just kind of work themselves out? And so I'm going to offer one possible roadmap to how this embracing of culture may happen. And then I'm going to offer you two simple tools to move you off that pathway of falling away. All right, so that's what we're going to close out with. So we've seen the, the head knowledge of the church. We've seen um, the, 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 the church itself in Pergamum who's starting to become indifferent. Let me just kind of give you then some application as we kind of leave here of a possible roadmap that, that I've seen in people's life of how they step away from Christ and into culture. So number one, here's step number one uh, in this, and you may have been here, uh, been part of this, but that number one in this step away is doubt God's goodness and confirm your own. Um, I've seen this time and time again for those that have walked away from the faith. The first step is always a doubt in how good God is. Because something happens in their life, some issue has arisen, and, and ultimately some suffering has probably come into their life, and doubt has crept in and say, if God was truly good, then where was he then? If God did this, how could I trust him? If I were God, I wouldn't. How many times have we said that, or have heard that, or we've, we've, we've secretly said it in our own minds? If I were God, I would... If I were in charge, that's not how I'd run things. And so the first step is this, just this little bit of doubting of his goodness and confirming your own. Where else have we seen this of doubting uh, God's goodness and confirming their own? It begins in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, correct? Where, where Satan comes in and says, hey, guess what? He's not that good. If he was truly good, he'd let you have all of this stuff and he wouldn't keep anything from you. And you know what? You're better than this. You deserve to know good and not, good and not right and wrong, good and not, tree of knowledge. You, you deserve all that. What's wrong with you? Do you know who you are? And we start to doubt his goodness and confirm our own. And that's normal. That's natural. And many of you guys are like, should I fear that? No, that's normal, natural. We're going to go through these seasons again and again and again. But what happens is that doubting his goodness and confirming your own can lead to step number two. And step number two is it starts to get confirmed through culture and it gives you reasons to doubt. You start to see it around you more and more. Satan's really good at this. This isn't new. <laughs> this isn't anything, What? Isn't it amazing? He hasn't had to change tactics since the time he was created. He hasn't had to study. I mean, there's just been none of this that he's been new. Like, how, how amazing would that be? Like, you would just have success in something, and you never had to change it for like 2,000 years. You know what I mean? That would be just fantastic. You know, just instant. But Satan's good at this. He just, he just, he knows it. So he'll confirm it through, through evidence of culture and give you reasons to doubt. He'll, he'll put Christians next to you during this time. And, and he'll make you really un, not like the Christian next to you. And it'll be like, I don't think I agree with them. I don't think I'm even friends with them. I don't think we're ever going to be on the same page on this issue in culture. And if God's not good and the church isn't good and I, I can't trust them, I can't trust God, well, then step number three is easy. I, I isolate. If the church isn't going to be the answer and God's not going to be the answer, I'll just pick myself and I'll be the answer and I isolate. We saw this over the last couple of years and then we choose isolation over solitude with God. There's a big difference between isolating and pulling yourself off and being independent on your own and being in solitude and spend time with God. There's a big difference between I'm just going to wrestle with him in this versus I'm just going to escape and run away. And so what he'll do is he'll, he'll confirm it. He'll give you isolation to, to kind of keep building this up and it just keeps building and building and building. And then number four, that isolation over time will lead to apathy. And then after enough isolation, you're kind of like, I don't even know if any of this matters. I don't even know if life matters. We have a serious problem in culture today of hope that is so far removed from people's lives. Mental issues on the rise, mental anxiety on the rise. All these things are on the rise because there's just this general apathy of this is as good as it gets apparently. This is all there is. And apparently God's not that good because if he was truly good, I'd see it more. I'd know it more. I'd feel it more. Apathy begins to set in and this church is probably the same. They doubted God's goodness. They're confirming a goodness that they're seeing in a culture of the Nicolaitans and the, and the Balaamites, and they're drawing them away, and this feels good. And all of a sudden, they start to isolate, and people start leaving the church. And then all of a sudden, apathy begins to set in. And once apathy sets in, which is truly Pergamum, is, is apathy, right after apathy, then you get the next one, which is acceptance, which ironically, if you look at the church list, it goes from Pergamum to Thyatira. If you watch Pergamum, it's apathy. If you see Thyatira, it's acceptance. So the churches even follow some of the structure. Once it's apathetic, then it's just an acceptance of where you are in life. This is just as good as it gets. This is what it is. I'm always going to be this way. And then you start to just accept this is my new normal. You walk away from church long enough, and, and, it's, and it's Christ long enough, and put it that way, and life just becomes normal 
without Christ. Life just becomes normal without church. And so we spend more time away, and then we start to figure along the way that, you know what, it, it's really hard then to get back. Because in order for people who have walked away from Christ or walked away from church, here's the reality this morning that we need to understand and love them with is that person who's at the acceptance role, do you realize they've got to work themselves all the way back up through the list to get back into church? So we as good Christ followers can say, you just need to get back in church, yes. You just need to get back into a family of believers, yes. You need to get out of isolation, yes. You just need to trust God, yes, you do. But can we walk beside them and say, yeah, but it's going to be a hard struggle for you to get there. It's not going to be easy just to turn the switch and be like, I'm going to go back to church and everything's going to be back to normal the way it was two years ago. It's not. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be many obstacles for you to come back to who Christ is. But ultimately, if we love people the way Christ loved them, we will walk with them and we'll say, you know what? I'm going to walk you through breaking through acceptance. I'm going to walk you through the apathy that you've walked into. I'm going to bring you back from isolation into a family of believers. And I'm going to confirm through Jesus and not through culture that this is good. And, and eventually, through this pathway, I hope and pray, for those who have walked away from Jesus, my prayer is always, I hope and pray through time that God will confirm again his goodness and show you your lack of. That makes sense. It's just reverse. Because if this doesn't happen, what happens in the final stage in the walking way is just hard hearts. And, and, and we just get hard, and it turns from I don't care to I don't like. Ever been there before? There's a difference between apathy of like, I just don't like the person to I really can't stand that person. Like that. It happens quickly. Once you've been in apathy long enough and acceptance long enough, the, the, the hatred starts to kick in pretty quick. And here's the hard part with hard hearts that you see here in, in Pergamum of the image of a sword. Hard hearts will need broken. And I've had numerous prayer times um, where I've prayed, God, please break them, but don't break them. There have been many people, even in this church, and prior churches where it's, God, just break them, but don't, don't take them out. I love the, the passage where, uh, I can't remember it off the top of my head, where Jesus reminds us that he will not um, snuff out a wick or break a bruised weed, reed. He will not break it in half. He, he's good enough to say, I won't, I won't do that. But I will break you to bring you back. I will, I will use circumstances at times to, to kind of bring you back. And so sometimes that's the only thing we can pray for people. God, break them, but don't break them. Many that, maybe that's the prayer you've prayed for your kids before. God, God, don't break them, but they're going to need broken. God, don't destroy them, but man, are they going to need some hard love right now. Because the apathy and the acceptance have set in. And all these things are part of walking away. And we may know this, but, but let me just offer some hope this morning and, and an easy kind of some, some steps as we close out this morning. Um, if we could truly see this, this pathway, I think we could keep going back to the biggest one, and that is this isolation uh, over solitude. And, and so let me just kind of give you um, one challenge this morning. If you feel as if I'm kind of walking away, and that's you, and I, I really feel like I've, 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 I don't know that I'm really into him anymore, or, or maybe you know people who have walked away and you're like, what do I do? How do I help them get back? How do I help them come back to Jesus? One, you pray. But secondly, I think maybe this is important. There's a quick image I want to give you. It's called this, 100 times 3. And this is something that may or may not make sense, but um, what this means is I, I need to get 100% honest and transparent with three people. I don't need to be 100% honest with everybody. That comes off as needy. <laughs> But I need to be 100% honest with at least three people in my life. It could be your spouse. It could be a friend. It could be a pastor. I, I don't know. But you need to be 100% with three. Why three? Because, because I think just more than one is needed to bring you out of the isolation. And here's the thing. In Christianity and in my own life, here's what I know. I'm really good at going 80% with somebody. I'm really good at being honest about 80% of my life. The negatives, the positives, I'll share about 80. But if somebody gets to 
of the joys and lows of somebody's life, that's, that's, that's where transformation happens. If you're constantly wondering why I can't fix this and why I can't ever get around this, it's probably because you've not allowed yourself to be 100% transparent with anybody. You've given them 60% or 50% and just said, this is my issue, why am I not growing? When in reality, if you go 100%, like this is the deep needed, these are the deep things I think in my heart that are just ugly. These are the things I say about God that I don't believe. These are the things I say about other people that just drive me crazy. These are the things I look at that I know I shouldn't. These are the things that I have nobody else in my life that I'm 100% with. But if I'm, not, if I'm going to truly follow Christ, he's asked us to live in community. And community means I need to be at least 100% with three. And, and who that is, how that is, I don't know. But just as a challenge, if you're feeling that pull, I challenge you to try and live this out. Because here's the lie that you're going to hear when you, when you try and live this out. If I share blank with blank, they will. And here's how we normally fill this out. We normally fill this out with a lot of negatives. If I share this with them, they will think, and I will never, and we throw a lot of absolutes. And that's the lie that the enemy really wants us to believe. If I, if I become 100% transparent, I'm never coming back from this. No, here's the reality. <laughs> if you're 100%, people are going to be like, oh my gosh, thank you for being 100%. Now I could be 100%. Oh my gosh, thank you for saying those things because I've felt those exact same things. If we share this with, they will. I want you to kind of just get that out of your head. And instead, I want you to put this truth in this morning for you. Maybe this is helpful. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is one of the first ones I learned in middle school, high school. This is the best thing you give to a middle school, high schooler because it's so easy to remember. If we confess, he's faithful. If we confess, he's faithful. If we confess, he's, I mean, there, there's a whole weekend talk that can be done on this verse alone. This is what you need to hear. If you're walking away and you're like, nobody could understand what I've done. Nobody could really handle my sins. It's too much. No, 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 no. If we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His way of kindness leads us to Repentance. It's not his bearing down that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that will lead us toward repentance. So this morning, maybe that's what you need to hear and say, okay, who do I need to be honest with so that I can get real of walking back in him? This morning, we may have known others who have walked away. You may be in that spot. I don't know. But regardless, I just want to challenge you to dive deep into God's goodness. And part of his goodness is this, that if we confess, he is faithful. And he's surrounding us with people who are willing to walk with us in that. Let me pray for you as we close. I'll finish up. God, I thank you for these letters. Um, I pray for those this morning right now who feel as if hiding is the better option, who feel as if, like, I could never be 100%. It's easier if I just stay where I'm at. I pray that during this this series or the summer, however your timing works, I pray that you would just allow us to be 100% with three other people. We would just say, I want to just be open and honest, and I want to grow, and I need you in my life. I pray that as we are honest and open, Father, we are caring at the same time. We are loving each other through these things. I pray that all of our doubts could come, all of our uh, insecurities could come, all of our fears could come, all of the sins that we don't want anybody to know could come, and, and they could all get buried at the cross. They could all get taken to you because you've promised that if we confess, you're faithful. And I pray that for us as a church, that we would remain constantly striving towards you, your word, coming as we are directly to you trusting you to work in our lives. It's your name we pray. Amen.